First Peter chapter 5, we will begin at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. So it was about fifth grade that I was informed I needed to start wearing glasses. And I remember dreading that first day of school, showing up with glasses on. But when it comes to athletics, it's really hard to play with glasses sometimes. Those of you who have done that know the pains and the difficulties of it. And especially soccer, because you have to be heading this ball from time to time and And I was never good enough to head it the way it should be done, so half the time it smashed me in the face. And, you know, glasses are not pleasant for that, are they, Connor? No. And at that point in time, contacts were out, but the primary contact was the hard contact. You remember that? The gas-permeable contacts. Like, took, took an army to get it into your eye and took an army to pull it out and get the suction off and all that kind of stuff. And so soft contacts were just coming out. So... So by the time I was in high school at some point, I, I started being able to wear contacts off and on, at least for sports. But I ended up playing soccer a lot like this. I'm not going to answer that question, Lon. <laughs> it depends on if you ask me or my teammates or my coach. So, uh, but But it's one of these things where you're like, I can see well enough to see. You can see where the ball is, right? You got an idea of where the play is going. You can see, well, it's kind of hard in there, but you can kind of see two colors, right? So you can know your teammates and you can know who the opposing team is, but it becomes very difficult to be fully engaged in the play when it's blurry, right? And last week we talked about seeing and seeing and saw and we talked about the different words. And we're not, we're not talking about that this morning, but the importance of seeing clarity, clarity to understand where the game is moving to and where you should be moving along in that process. And so with that in mind, I want to take us back to two weeks ago and suggest that as we continue in this passage, God directs us to prepare for spiritual warfare, part two. God directs us to be prepared for spiritual warfare, part two. If I can't see the enemy... I'm going to have trouble fighting the enemy. If the enemy's blurry, I'm a little hesitant to engage because I don't want to be fighting somebody that's not my enemy. 
And so as we wrap up in First Peter, we, and yes, that is accurate, as we wrap up in First Peter, we come to the stern warning concerning the devil. Peter warns us that the adversary, the, the one who is against us, the devil, Satan, be reminded that all those words mean that he is a slanderer, he's a false accuser, he's a malicious enemy who is constantly chipping away. Reality is that sometimes we give the devil more credit than he deserves. We've, we've talked about this in the past, like sometimes we give the devil credit for our own struggle with our flesh. The residue of the flesh that still exists there. And we're like, oh, Satan's tempting. No, no, no. You're just tempting yourself. But the other side is true, too, that sometimes we give him too little credit. We go, oh, no, no, this is just my own struggle. I just need to. And we don't take into account that, no, 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 the, the devil is looking for opportunities to attack us. And so in this context of suffering, in this context of submission, remember all of Peter, this context of submission to authority, submission to government, submission to our employers, submission to our spouse, submission to leadership in the church. What do you think the devil wants to do? Stir it up. So this morning as we walk through this, the first thing that we need to understand is we need to know our enemy. We need to know our enemy. And Peter describes it this way, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is prowling around. The devil is actively engaged in the battle. We, we have this image in our mind, right, of the guy in the red spandex suit with horns and, and a pitchfork and something like that. And, and we see all these, you know, joking things about Satan, the devil. And, and sometimes we think, well, maybe he's just kicking back and taking it easy. My life seems to be good right now, so he must be. No, no, no. He is prowling. He is active. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't kick back and, and go, oh, you know what? It, it's time to to sit down, have a drink, and watch NFL. He's like, no, 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 no. I need to stay engaged in the battle. And, and Peter describes it as prowling around. It means that he is taking every single opportunity that he has to accomplish the destruction of individuals and groups. In Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity or if you would, foothold. Some of our Bibles say a foothold to the devil. Why? We need to be this attentive because he is constantly prowling around. He's on the move. He's not sitting passively. He's looking for opportunities to step in. You know, one of the questions I jotted down here is, how often do we give him the opportunities? How often are we just unconsciously not thinking about the battle at hand? And so all of a sudden, out of the blue, we give him an opportunity. See, one of the things Peter's trying to remind us of is we are engaged in the battle. Don't give an opportunity. Always be looking around because he is always looking. Notice, as we look at this, 
your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. And it struck me as I prepared this and thought about it. The devil's prowling around. But he's not silent. See, we give him too much credit sometimes. We think that he's the slithery snake and he's sneaking up. See, that's part of the devil's issue, is that he's prowling around like a roaring lion. He's making sounds if we would be attentive. We would know where he's getting ready to attack us if we would just be attentive to it. He's not sliding in the the tall grasses of the African wilderness. He's going around and he's... He can smell us. His, his mouth is full of saliva. It's watering. It's dripping down his beard, his mane. But he's making noises. He's making noises. We need to be attentive to that. Listen for the sounds that he's making. We may not be able to see it. Anybody ever been? I know, I know I've talked to a couple people in the past. Anybody ever been out like hunting, hiking, and, and you're kind of like, just, I'm not, I don't think that I'm alone here. And you go to find out later that there is a mountain lion that is up in that area where you were just hiking. You may not have seen it, but, but there's that sense of I'm, I am not, we need to have that spiritual sense. I am, I'm not alone here. Something is off. Am I listening to the sound? As a result, then, his attacks shouldn't surprise us. If we're attentive, if we're, if we're observant, we should see the attacks coming before they happen and be prepared for them. Peter goes on, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Look, Satan's role is not to play with his meal. The devil's not going to come at us and bat us around like a cat playing with a mouse or a bird, right? The devil doesn't come around and go, oh, oh, this is so much fun. Oh, I like just mess it. No, Satan is coming to devour. He is looking for the opportunity to, to, to sink his teeth into us and hold on. Have you, have you ever watched some of the African safari shows, right, where where the, the lion pounces on top of like a gazelle and grabs the neck and just holds on. And this thing's swinging it around. That's what Satan is trying to do. He is trying to devour us. So in order to be prepared for the spiritual warfare that's at hand, we need to know our enemy. So where have I underestimated the devil? Where have I underestimated the devil? Maybe I should ask a double question. Where have I underestimated? Where have I overestimated? This morning we're going to talk about underestimating, though, and being prepared for underestimating. I'd rather you overestimate and be corrected than underestimate and be devoured. So where have I underestimated the devil? And then I want to pick up and just review very quickly two weeks ago. In fighting the spiritual warfare, we started out in verse 6 with this idea of humility before God. Because really, as Paul says it, 
in, in Ephesians chapter 4, it's all about not giving the devil a foothold. Not allowing the devil to, to snag his teeth into the back of your neck and hold on. So how does that start? Well, if we're practicing humility, then we're neither prideful nor self-debased. If we're practicing humility, we're neither prideful nor self-debased. We see ourselves as God sees us. By the way, self-debased really is just another form of pride. Because it's still thinking all about myself. In the one sense, I'm better than I think I am. On the other sense, I'm not nearly as good as I should think that I am. And so it's pride. It's all about me. If we practice humility before God, we, re- we reduce the opportunities for the devil to get a foothold in my attitude. Because guess who's going to start whispering louder and louder and louder and I'm Well, that's right, Terry. You are better than them. (laughs) They think they're spiritual. Look what you've accomplished, Terry. Or vice versa. Yeah, you, you really are dirt. You really are scum of the earth, Terry. (laughs) You think that God loves you? (laughs) Look at your life. Look at, look at the things you've walked through. Right? Satan's gonna be there. He's, he's chomping. He's chomping. He's trying to make it work. So if I practice humility, neither thinking of myself more highly nor more lowly than I ought to be, I'm walking in line with God and in humility, then I reduce those footholds that he can grab onto. Secondly, release anxieties to God. Casting all your anxieties on him, verse 7, because he cares for you. See, if we're releasing anxieties then we're acknowledging God's power and God's sovereignty in our life. Because we're taking, remember, it wasn't just a, okay, I'll try not to worry about those. It was an actual casting of the, it's throwing them. And so it's saying, okay, this thing over here, I'm starting to sense, by the way, here's a great place where emotions become valuable, right? Knowing your emotions. Am I, am I mad? Am I frustrated? Am I angry? Am I, right? So am I anxious? Am I worried? Am I fearful? But being self-aware and being able to go, okay, this is starting to surface. God, I need to throw this at you. I need to cast this on you. And in so doing, I acknowledge that you are more powerful than any of these circumstances and situations. And I believe that whatever you allow to come my way, you will be sufficient enough to walk me through it. You are both all-powerful and you are sovereign. You have the power to take care of it and you know what you're doing. Releasing our anxieties reduces the foothold of worry that the devil likes to use. I mean, honestly, how many of us have established footholds in our lives for Satan out of worry? I I don't know. I have to go in and I have to talk to this person. And if I talk to them and if I really share the truth with them, they might not like me anymore. They might unfriend me from Facebook. Uh, they might kick me off of Twitter. They might even lock me out of my Twitter account or something like that if I have to speak the truth in love. We have all of that worry. And I don't know, in my own life, my own experiences, 
when I'm able to cast that anxiety, you know, the meeting doesn't necessarily go the way that I want it to go, but there's a peace that is carried through in that meeting. Think about it this way. How often do I talk, walk into those circumstances? We'll stick with this. I have to have a conversation with somebody. We walk into these circumstances with, with worry, so I've given the devil a foothold. And so I end up bringing the devil into the circumstance that maybe he wasn't present in to begin with. I've just drugged him in with me. And how often do we not take that worry and anxiety and give it to God and we walk into those and all of a sudden that meeting just snowballs. And before you know it, you're like, I'm done. I'm done with this. Like this is, and you're yelling and screaming at each other and whatever else happens. But in order to have a have an approach to spiritual warfare, we need to keep tossing the anxieties. Third, remain calm and collected. In verse 8, be sober-minded and watchful. We need to sober mind and watchful, remain calm and collected. If we resist being slothful, so so that's taking calm and collected too far, right? That's going, oh, God's in control. I don't need to worry about anything. I don't need to do anything, so I'm just going to sit back. I'm going to have a drink and watch the NFL game. There's nothing wrong with watching an NFL game. I'm just using it, right? But we we kick back and we, we go, yeah, God's got it all in his, and we become slothful. Well, if there's a spiritual war at hand, we can't be slothful. We need to be engaged. If we resist slothfulness, we acknowledge the battle at hand. And if we're watching attentively for the roaring lion, then we're seeking out our own blind spots and we're engaged in community to help others watch for their blind spots. By the way, if I'm engaged in community, it helps with that humility thing. Because that's a good blind spot for me. So we need to be walking through the humility before God. We need to release anxieties to God. We need to remain calm and collected in this process. As we get ready to go into the next section, I'm going to invite the kids to come up. And I'm going to invite kid watcher. um, I was going to say slayer, but that wouldn't go over well. Um. Kid Harnesser, child at heart himself, Mr. Larry Dammerman, would you come up here and and help me with this? Deb and Jennifer, we're going to use uh, Christina's mic also. Do you want to position yourself over there so that you're near your equipment? Okay. Oh, I forgot something. Hold on, Larry. Don't get too excited too soon. Boom, there we go. How many of you like to do that? Should we see how many adults like to do that? How many adults like to do that? Yeah, there's a couple of you. There's, there's a couple of you. There's a few of you. Enjoy fishing. Well, I want to talk about fishing. Do you think that when you go fishing, you, you fish the same way for every type of fish? No. What are some of the different ways that you already know of fishing? Fly fishing. What's normal fishing? You don't know. Putting a worm on a hook, yep. And that, that works great in certain environments, right? Sometimes you can fish from a, a pier or a dock or something like that, and that works. How, how else might you have to fish? 
on a boat or a raft, yeah, you need to get out somewhere else in the water, or there's different types of water, so fly fishing. You could stand in the water. A lot of fly fishing gets done standing in the water, right? Well, I've asked, I've asked uh, master fisherman, Larry Dammerman, to help me out here. Because, Larry, when you go fishing, do you always use the same thing to fish? No. No, so you, you have brought with you this morning a bunch of what? Of all kinds of lures. So, so different lures are used for different fishing species of fish. Uh, what else? Weather? Would you use different lures for different weather? Yeah? Okay, you, you can just sit down here. He'll make sure that we can all see him. If, if, you, if you were trustworthy enough, I'd let him pass him around, but I want no hooks in people's skin or eyes or anything like that, so we won't do that. But uh, I don't know, just demonstrate for us some of, the, some of the things that you have and what they would be used for and, and where and weather conditions. And Let's start with walleye. Because we'd have some of those up in the lake, right? <laughs> Now, hold on. Let's go ahead and see if we can get some kickback. You get custom crankbaits from – no, I'm just joking. Because that could go out online, and it could be explosive, and you could make a, a living off of it. Okay, okay then, we, then we won't go. Okay. So, so give us something else. Let's talk about uh, bass up on Gorcha. Would you use those for bass up on Gorcha? Thank you. 
like a mermaid laying on the bottom of a... Okay, Elias, should we... What's your favorite fish to catch? Trout? So do you want to ask him some secrets about trout fishing? No. How would you how would you catch the rainbow in the uh, river? Yeah. So you're, you're not trying to snag them; you're trying to attract them. Okay. Right. How would you How would you do trout differently in Campbell's Pond? So, so as we've been talking about here, I want to bring you back to here. Bring, bring your attention back this way. Have you paid attention to what we're talking about in First Peter chapter five? No. <laughs> I appreciate the honesty, but we've been talking about how the devil is like a roaring lion, prowling around seeking to devour you. Okay. Now, I'm a little disappointed in Peter, and I think if I had editorial rights when Peter was writing these. I would have said, you know, Peter, I, I get that analogy, but you're a fisherman. Stick with fish, okay? Stick with what you know. And uh, he would have known different bait, different things. So so as we continue to talk, I want you to put in your mind, rather than just a roaring lion trying to devour us, imagine the devil being a fisherman who's trying different bait to get you to bite, okay? Because different fish bite on different baits. And really, those lures in the water are a temptation to the fish, right? They are a temptation to the fish. And so what are the different ways that the devil might try to tempt us and get us hooked? Okay? That's what I want you to be thinking on. Oh, not if it changes my point. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Huh. I thought you were always supposed to be quiet when you were fishing, so I can actually be noisy. The sound of that. Yes. Gotcha. That doesn't help. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you, Master Fisherman Larry Damerman. Thanks for sharing with us this morning. All right, so I want you guys to be thinking, maybe even think about if I if I was that fish that that the devil's trying to catch, which lure, which temptation is he going to use in my life to try to catch me? Okay, all right, and then you can go back there in the back. It looks like Miss Deb grabbed the basket and you go on back, Haley. <laughs>
See, they get all excited. There's temptations there. Now, Larry, you didn't give us any of your fine secrets, did you? Because I, I want you to be paid for those. If uh, No, okay. That'll cost. Okay. So uh, he is for hire. I don't know how often. Um, I don't know his rates either, but uh, he is for hire if you would like to hire him to go fishing elsewhere sometime. Peter continues in First Peter chapter 5. After talking about the devil prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour someone, he goes on to say, so, so resist him. Set yourself against the devil. This is not passive resistance. This is active resistance. This idea of resist the devil is not just like, okay, I'm going to be tough. No, rather it is set yourself... To set yourself to resist, what, what Peter's talking about here, what the Greek words talk about is that you have to, first of all, know where the devil's coming from. But that is his point in the verse before. He's, he's growling. He's roaring. So you can identify where he's coming from, but then you need to turn that way and you need to be prepared to engage. It's not a place where we can go, oh, well, God's sovereign and powerful, so I don't have to do anything. It is a place where Peter says actively resist. Set yourself against the devil. If we were to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, we're not right now, but if we were to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about um, holding fast, putting on the armor of God that we may withstand. Now remember, Paul says that we stand firm. I don't think that Peter and Paul would disagree with each other. He's not saying chase after the devil. He's saying prepare to engage. And Paul says... Put on the armor and stand firm. And he goes on to say that you may withstand, that you may fight. In James chapter 4, James writes, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. In other words, turn, face him, get ready to fight him. And he will what? He will flee. We've all been told, right, don't show dogs fear. They can smell fear. They can actually seen YouTube videos, right, of people turning on the dog and growling and barking and then the dog goes scampering off. Think of that image. When Satan's ready to attack, when you've identified and you're standing firm, why does, he, why does, why does Peter say cast off your anxiety? Because he doesn't smell that fear, you know. If we're sitting there and we're like, I don't want you having any weapons in your hand if you're acting like that, by the way. Um, but, but if we're standing there and we're, we're ready, you know, we, we, we've drawn down on them. Right, we've got them in the sights and we're going, I bring it. Bring it. Not as a temptation to the devil, but as a I see you, I see you're coming after me, we're gonna we're gonna tangle, we're gonna fight. So standing firm, resist, set yourself. How do I do this resistance? Well, Peter goes on to say a few things. First of all, be firm in your faith. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are going on around us, firm in our faith. Often the attack that Satan is going to use is our own faith. It's a foothold. I'm not sure. Do I really believe God in this? Do I believe the instructions of God in this? Do I believe the power of God, the sovereignty of God? Do I believe, do I have the faith? Do I have the faith that when he calls me to step out and do something that under normal circumstances is absolutely insane, but I know God's calling me to do that, 
do I have the faith to do it or not? And if I step out without the faith, then guess what's going to start happening? Worry and anxiety are going to begin to creep up. Uncertainties. Our faith is going to be challenged in the process. Faith. Think about the Garden of Eden for a moment. I know, that's, that's like the other end of the book here. Think about the Garden of Eden for a moment. In the end, uh, and there's a whole lot in between, so I'm, I'm really you know, bringing it really quick. But pride is the contrast to faith. Pride in identity is the contrast to faith in identity. Because what was the temptation? You can become like. So in other words, it was a whisper of faith that you're not good enough. That your identity isn't secure enough. You need something more in your life. Anxiety is contrary to faith in the sovereignty of God. It's a signal flare. But to hold on to it rather than cast it is contrary to faith. Slothfulness is contrary to faith of our calling. We have a role. We can't just sit back. We are all called. And we are all called to engage in the battle, not to sit back. I need to remain in my faith in order to resist the devil. Part of this holding fast and holding firm in our faith is what Peter goes on to talk about in verse 10. We're skipping the rest of 9 for a moment, but in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself. There's a hope that God is putting out here. Peter's writing about. There's a hope. If, if you'll stand firm, if you'll resist, if you'll remain in your faith, then there is a hope. And what will God do? In himself, he will restore us. He will confirm us. He will strengthen us. And he will establish us. Is that not a hope to look forward to? And so, so... When the battle is right at your front door, when it's it's about time to engage, and you're kind of like, I don't know if I can do it, remember the hope of God to restore us, to transform us, to establish us, to strengthen us in the process. So we need to, to hold on to our faith to engage in this battle. So this morning, where has my faith become shaky? Where's my faith wobbling? Remember, Satan's prowling around looking. It's not often in the places of security. It's the places of insecurity. So where are those places that my faith is getting a little shaky? Satan's walking around sniffing. Hmm. Is it money? I don't have enough money to make it. I'm getting anxious, God. I'm gonna. I, I I've got to take this into my own hands. I got to go out and do something. Is it money? Is it is it identity? I don't. I don't seem to be accepted. I don't seem to be loved. I don't seem to be appreciated. I don't seem to be. Is that where the faith is getting shaky? I don't really believe that God says that that I am loved, that I am cared for, that I am his son or his daughter, that I am a prince or a princess, that I am 
Is it there? And so now I'm getting shaky gone. Yeah, those are nice things, God, but, you know, people tell me those things, but then they fail. They fail and they bail. So I, I don't know, God. Uh, it's great to hear those things from you, but I don't know if I really believe them. Where's my faith shaky at this moment in time? In verse 9, Peter goes on to say, remember others. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. One of the great tactics of Satan is to isolate. Isolate, isolate, isolate. Again, let's go back to the National Geographic videos of Sub-Saharan Africa. I could dictate them sometime. That'd be really fun, right? And you have a pride of lions. Isn't that ironic? It's a pride of lions, and Satan is a lion that, anyways... Pride of lions, and you you have all these um, I don't know. Give me give me something. The wildebeests, the wildebeests. Those are great, and the wildebeests are hanging out together, right? But then some of them start to get skittish. So what does the pride of lions do? They try to isolate. They if they can get one by itself, they know that they can take it. And so here Peter's going. That's a, that's a scheme of the enemy. And you know what? He's right. Because if Satan can isolate us away from community, he has a better chance of devouring us. And so Peter is reminding the church that he's writing to, going, remember, you are not alone in this. Not only are you as a church, because that would be a temptation to even a small community inside a larger community going, oh, we're by ourselves. But he goes, no, 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 remember, your brotherhood throughout Asia, throughout this world, is facing the same suffering that you are. So how do I prepare for spiritual warfare? Sometimes I prepare and I engage in the battle by remembering. Hebrews chapter 11, if you need to, right? Go back to Hebrews 11 and 12 and read through the Hall of Faith and read through some of these great things that are, you know, read some of the biographies of people. Voice of the Martyrs. Pick up some of their material and and read what's taking place around the world. What we are in is not new to us and it's not only for us. It is happening all over the world and worse. But as it gets worse, where do we look? We look to those who have already been journeying it to engage in the battle. Why do you think it is that that when temptation in our life rises, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because some of us will lie and not raise up. But why do you think it is that when temptation surfaces and perhaps we even fall, fail, if you would, to temptation, But all of a sudden, we don't want to go to church. I I, I was going to ask you if I ever had that feeling, but like I said, I don't. I don't want you. Because the reality is, when, when you know, when we're tempted so strong and we feel like we should be able to overcome this temptation, all of a sudden we think somehow we're we're weaker. And I don't want to be at church because I don't want people to see my my struggles. My weakness. And yet, shouldn't the community of Christ 
be the very place where the joy of weakness is celebrated in dependence upon one another in Christ? See, see, the irony is that in the Christian journey, in the kingdom of God, those who are struggling, whether it's with temptation or struggling because fallenness has taken place, because I, I, I failed the test, I, I did whatever... The Christian, the, the kingdom of God, the Christian community should be the first place we want to run to. But we don't tend to. Why? Because Satan is trying to isolate us. Because he knows that if he can isolate us, then he can get his teeth in further. See, so you failed. Jesus said you'd be strong enough. Jesus went through those temptations. Interestingly, Jesus went through those temptations in the wilderness alone. I don't know about you, I'm not Jesus. And facing temptations alone is a lot harder than facing temptations in community. When we feel defeated, we tend to isolate. When we isolate, it compounds the struggle. So Peter reminds us we are not the only ones struggling. That's that's why I, I, I really enjoyed what's it been over a year ago when we did the sexual integrity one oh one course. And whether it was sexual issues or other issues, it was a place where where I believe for the most part we were honest with each other. I, I mean I have no gauge. I can't I, I don't I don't want God to give me, nor does God give me your list of, you know, wrongdoings or anything like that. I don't want that. But trusting in the context of our circles of conversation, there was an openness to say, I, I'm not all that there is. I struggle. I have weak areas. When in my life, when in my journey, do I become tempted to isolate from when those temptations are surfacing are the times I need to be listening harder for the devil's roars. Because he's drawing closer and he's trying harder. When do I become tempted to isolate from others? Is it, is it only when I have fallen and succumbed and then Satan starts to launch the shame? If you've grown up in the church for any length of time, one of those areas of shame is that if you've sinned, you're not really qualified to take communion. Can I, just, can I just ask us to back up in our memories for a moment and go, do we understand that that's entirely the purpose of communion? And yet, how often do we go, oh, I'm, I'm unworthy to take communion because I sinned this week, and I know that rather than going, God, I have sinned, but because of your blood in your body, I'm forgiven and I'm set free. And so in the midst of it, I, I don't come going, whoo, sorry if you have Catholic roots, Greg. I don't, I don't come going, I can participate in this because then I can go do anything that I want the rest of the week. It's called Catholic confession. No, 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 that's. When Paul starts talking about how we're treating the table poorly, that's what he's talking about. Miss a, but he doesn't, he doesn't say don't come to the table because you've sinned. He says examine yourself. 
the examine yourself isn't, okay, I'm sinless. No, I think of the examine yourself is, I recognize I'm not sinless. And so when I come to this table, there's power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that power, I know that I can be free and I can be forgiven and I am redeemed. But see, Satan likes to throw that shame in there. And that shame builds on our isolation. And so for some of us, it's when we fall in, we start feeling that, Some of us start feeling that shame when we're tempted. Because we're like, if I was really walking with Jesus, I shouldn't be tempted. So somehow you're better than Jesus. Jesus was tempted. There's no shame in the temptation. When we start to embrace the temptation and pursue the temptation, when that when that lure is out there, right? How many of us have been fishing? We toss it out and we see the fish. And we're like, oh, it's biting. We pull it. And we're like, oh, that was a little soon. And so we so we start reeling it. We see it coming again. It's, oh, it was a little soon. And, I mean, when we start following that lure over and over, and, and maybe we've been bit once or twice by it already, but we're like, oh, that looks so good. That's when we start to have troubles. When do I, when do I become tempted to isolate from others? Finally, Peter says, stand fast in God's grace. Remember, we're talking about how do I prepare for spiritual warfare. And, and this morning we're saying we prepare by standing firm in our faith. To stand firm in my faith means I need to be engaged in the word of God. I need to be engaged in the community of God. I need to be engaged in living out the life of God in my life. I need to be remembering that I am not alone in this. I, uh, God didn't just place me and go, okay, Terry, it's your job to live the Christian life by yourself. No, there's, there's others that have walked the same journey. And third, this morning, he reminds us to stand fast in God's grace. In God's grace. If we jump down to verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Well, what's the true grace? That Silvanus, a faithful brother, or that Paul's written? No. It's the entire book. And if you were to, if you were to read through this letter again, here's what you would find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, verse 10, and verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 5, verses 5, 10, and now 12. Peter talks about grace over and over and over. And at some points in time, grace is suffering. And at other points in time, grace is gifts that we get to manifest and use in the body for his glory. But all of it is grace. So guess what? It means that the trials and the suffering and the battle against the devil are all God's gifts working in us. It is grace. See, our, our problem is that we have a theology similar to blessing. If you've been around OCC, I've, I've talked about this on different occasions. We have a flawed theology of blessing that when God blesses me, in and of my perspective, that means good things are happening to me. And so when something bad happens to me, then I go, well, God's not blessing me any longer. By, by the way, I'm going to say something very 
assertive and on the edge of a limb. But that thinking in and of itself is grasping on to the health and prosperity gospel. To say that God blessing me means that good is happening. Here's the reality. If we look at scripture, when God's blessing us, good things are happening. It means that we're suffering. It means that we're facing trials. Those are good things. Our problem is that we still think of the kingdom of the earth rather than the kingdom of God. So here's what I want to pose again. Much like blessing, grace is the same way. And that is we are blessed and we are offered grace when we encounter things that draw us to God. So suffering is not something meant to draw us away from God. It's meant to draw us to God. Trials are not intended. Satan will use trials to draw us away from God, but the trials themselves are meant to draw us to God, to have this dependence attitude to go, God, I'm not strong enough to make it through this. I need you. That is grace. That is being blessed. Anything that draws us closer to him or turns us in his direction is grace. It is a blessing. In all of Paul's letter, he's been putting those pieces into place. The sacrifice of Jesus is painful and as tortuous, torturous and 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 as as gruesome as that is, it's grace. Because it was God extending himself for us. Our sufferings, our trials, our predicaments are not things our experience of things not going our way is God's grace. And it is his blessing. God's gifts may at times be painful but they are ultimately beneficial. So where am I struggling to accept God's grace today? Where am I struggling to accept God's grace? See, one of the interesting things is while the devil's prowling around looking for somebody to devour, making a lot of noise in the process, he's he's trying to throw us into positions of temptation He's trying to throw us into positions of suffering, trying to throw us. And he doesn't realize that he is still doing the work of God. Except it's not by choice. He, he doesn't know any other way. So he puts us into these situations. And those who are standing firm in their faith go, okay, God, I need you even more right now. So why is Satan looking for people to isolate? And devour because when we're isolated we don't tend to turn toward God we tend to turn inward we go how do I get out of this how do I solve this problem how do I and yet the design of it should all be okay God how do you recently well it, it happens frequently but even recently reminded a conversation about, you know, oftentimes we want to ask the question. I think this is American mentality. We want to ask the question, why? Why am I suffering? Why am I being tempted? Why? 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 
and if you're a philosopher, forgive me for my my poor use of words, but we need to reverse our teleological thought process, and we need to go, God, what are you wanting to show me in this? What do I need to learn? What are you desiring to reveal of yourself in this? Not why. Not why am I suffering? Why am I going through this stuff? Why do I encounter this? But what do you want to have happen in this, God? When I'm struggling with grace, I think I ask the why question a little bit more. When I'm ready to receive God's grace, I start to ask the what question a little bit more. What are you doing here that I need to be attentive to? The battle's not going to get easier. The battle's not going to disappear. I... I don't see that until the end of time in Scripture. The battle's not going to dissipate. The battle's not... It's it's here. We will suffer. We will struggle. We will have trials. We will have temptations. We will have all of this. And if we fail to prepare ourselves in advance for it, then we're more likely doomed for failure in it. Yet Peter invites us to prepare ourselves for the battle spiritual war. I can I can tell you with certainty and there might be some who would argue with me theologically. That's that's fine. I know plenty of people that have been wrong before. The battle is only going to get worse. The way I read scripture, the battle is only going until the trumpet sounds and Christ comes and the dead in Christ are raised and we get to see the ultimate victory over everything. But it gets worse before it gets better. So if we're not preparing ourselves now, how will we handle it when it strikes? Father, Some of our struggle is a result of the time and space in which we live. We recognize that that being in America in 2022, there's a lot of levels of comfort that would cause us to neglect being prepared for battle. And yet... And yet we recognize there is a battle at hand. We also recognize throughout history and even in the world today that there are people in our same boat, in our, in our same circumstance. Life is relatively easy, but they are more engaged in the battle and they are ready for it. God calls us to be men and women, sons and daughters, Princes and princesses of the Most High who are attentive to the battle at hand, who have fixed our eyes on the kingdom of God above and beyond the kingdom of Israel. Give us an understanding of what's taking place. Give us a, a, a passion to build an action plan to engage in the battle, 
to celebrate victory, not just in our own life, but in the lives of those around us who you have called us to journey with. Father, ultimately, this is all about bringing you glory. So would you prepare us for the battle that we could celebrate you as the king, as the victor, as the Lord of lords, the great I am, the one who sits on the throne. May we surrender our lives for the sake of the battle that you have us called to engage.